Today, this is increment 180 of We See Jesus, Hebrews 2020. We want to begin today with a special announcement. We've already had it once before, but we're going to have the Salvation Army Treasures for Children campaign. And we've been doing this now for several years running. We're going to be collecting new toys here at our facility in New Kensington through December 14th. And you can call the office. The number is 724-335-3550 to drop off. And we're expecting a generous cavalcade of gifts that will make children happy that may not have had opportunity to receive gifts on Christmas. So that's always a blessing to cooperate with and co-labor with the Salvation Army here in New Kensington. It's been a blessed collaboration all the way through and we hope that you'll be generous with that. Salvation Army Treasures for Children campaign going through December 14th. Now our plan as far as teaching the Word of God here, we're going to have increment 180, which will be technically for Sunday, November 21st. And then we will not be having, as is our custom, we'll not be having a special Wednesday increment, an increment for Wednesday before Thanksgiving. However, I'm strongly recommending that for those who want to listen to a message either on Thanksgiving Eve or Thanksgiving Day, that you listen to the last message in our Doctrine of the Mystery, which was in 2019. It's up on the website. It will be under the Doctrine of the Mystery, and it will be Lesson 15, the last lesson, I believe, before the kickoff of the Hebrew series called The Word of the Cross. And I think that will give you and your family something to be thankful about around the table on Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for the Word of the Cross. Today we're continuing in our line upon line, verse by verse, exposition of Hebrews. And I think this has been very timely chosen by the Holy Spirit for us during a time of dispersion to occupy our attention with our Lord Jesus Christ and to allow the Holy Spirit to occupy the territory of our souls and minds and hearts with our great archpriest, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we thank you, Father, for this opportunity. Looking into the Word is seeing the image of your Son, the result of which is being conformed into that image from one degree of glory to the next. We pray that this increment and every increment taught in Hebrews will result in the magnification of your son. And we ask this in his name. Amen. This message today will be entitled Without Genealogy. And you'll see why, I think, as we progress I'm going to be speaking a lot about genealogies, and I hope you'll keep this couple of numbers in mind while we do. 49 and 77. Those are two good numbers to remember as we consider genealogies today. 
and the subject, oddly enough, without genealogy. Hebrews 7.1, we'll begin reading right there. It says, now about this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest to God Most High, who met with Abraham and blessed him as a return from the defeat of the kings, to whom Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. First, the interpretation of his name is king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, which means king of peace. Then it says in verse 3a, the first part, without father. A curious word here, without father, then without mother. And so in the Greek it's a pator, for without father, it's an, this word is, begins with the alpha privative and then the word pator, P-A-T-O-R. Make that a T there. A pator, without father, and then it says without mother, another alpha word or alpha privative word, without mother, a mator. And that means literally without a mother, without father, without mother, amator, apator, amator. And then there is this word following that, it's without genealogy, and that one's another alpha word. He does this on purpose, it's called alliteration, it's supposed to grab our attention by using the same letter to begin three words in a row. This one is a long word, A-G-E-N-E-A-L-O-G-A-T-O-S, and that is without genealogy. It's A-Genea Logetos, A-Genea Logetos, without a genealogy. So we have three A words, he does this a lot, it's called alliteration, where he begins three words in a row with the Greek letter alpha. Now up to now, an astute student who's studying and reading these printed excerpts may have noticed that I have omitted from the translation in my last three or four increments, I've omitted this word a genea logetos from the translation, the phrase without genealogy. I omitted it. At first it was by accident and then I decided to keep omitting it because I wanted to draw our attention to it. And so we have now this translation. Now about this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest to most high God, who met with Abraham and blessed him as he returned from the defeat of the kings, to whom Abram Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. First, the interpretation of his name is King of Righteousness. This is the year of the great king, as we named it last January. Interestingly, we're ending the year on that tone and on that subject. Then he is also King of Salem, which means King of Peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy. So once again, this listing of three descriptive alpha privative words for Melchizedek all begin with the Greek letter alpha. Apator, ametor, agena logetos, agenea 
Thagaitas, that is. By alliteration, then, the PT joins these three together to say that Melchizedek was without a genealogy or without a recorded pedigree, as Bullinger puts it. That simply means that in the treatment of Melchizedek, there was no genealogy connected with him. That's not so with Abraham. Genesis chapter 5 indicates a genealogy that leads up to Noah. We have Abraham appearing in many genealogies, including Matthew's and Luke's genealogy of Jesus Christ. There's no genealogy connected to Melchizedek. The only time we see him is in Genesis 14, 18 to 20, without a connection to mother, father, or genealogy. And then we see him again in Psalm 110.4, where God says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this is a point that the author of Hebrews exploits in his demonstration of the superiority of Jesus over Aaron and of Jesus' priesthood over that of the Levitical priesthood. To be qualified to be a Levitical priest, one had to have a proven genealogy in the line of Aaron through Levi. In the Gospels, there are two genealogies of Jesus, and this is what I want to emphasize today. One in Matthew and one in Luke. Luke's genealogy is particularly interesting because the name Jesus, Yesu, which is Yehoshua in the Hebrew, appears in both the 49th place, associating him with the eschatological jubilee. We'll explain that not only in this increment, but perhaps in the increment to come, which would be the November 28th message. His name, the name Jesus, not speaking of Jesus per se, but his namesake is found in the 49th position of the list of names in the Luke genealogy, or we call the Lucan genealogy. And this associates him with the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee is actually a name for the Messianic age itself, for the restoration of all things for the liberation of all creation. So that's extremely important. We're going to find out. And you have to be pretty attentive to find this out. But Luke is an extraordinarily universalistic preacher and evangelist. His writings emphasize the universal horizon and universal impact of Jesus' saving work and his saving person. So Luke's genealogy then is particularly interesting because the name Jesus appears in the 49th place, which associates him with this eschatological jubilee. And ultimately, his name appears in the 77th place, the 77th place where Jesus himself, the Son of God, is mentioned. This has ultimate significance, in fact. As Richard Bauckham observed, and I read this and reread this, I noticed I read this in 2010 and I reread it recently in Richard Bauckham. 
he observed, and I'm quoting, Jesus as the 77th generation is thereby shown to be of ultimate significance. The furthest the generations of world history will go, both in number and in significance. And then he adds, for anyone familiar with one Enoch, the first book of Enoch, chapter 10, verse 12, the Lucan genealogy would clearly designate Jesus the last generation of world history before the end. Now, I hope we can do some explanation of this because that's a re two remarkable statements. His 77th position in Luke's genealogy would be understood by people who understood also, as Luke did, the book called First Enoch, which was written in the second century, and also the book called Jubilees, which was written in the between the third and second century BC, both BC. Luke was familiar with both of these books. We know that Enoch, first Enoch, was actually quoted in Jude, Jude. 114 where he speaks of Enoch the seventh from Adam and if you study the genealogy in Genesis 5 you'll notice that this Enoch is actually the seventh generation from Adam if you count Adam it's the seventh name out and the names the seventh generation and every seventh generation was called in Enoch a week of generations. So there were seven generations that would make a week of generations. And he had within his book a thing called the Apocalypse of Weeks. And he arranged history in terms of every seventh generation. And in every seventh generation, something extraordinary would happen. One, the book of Enoch, shows that Enoch himself was the seventh out from Adam. Enoch indicated a very special time in history because he was the first person in that genealogy and the only one in that genealogy that never saw death. And he was translated out of this world. And that's what Hebrews 11, 5, and 6 also deals with. So every seventh week, there was something significant occurring. Imagine then the end of the seven times seventh week the 49th week that would indicate a universal jubilee and that's where Jesus appears in Luke's genealogy even more the 77th generation would have ended up explaining what is the last generation in human history now how can Jesus be seen to be the last generation in world history only if we see him as the second representative human being who represents all of mankind and only if we see his death on the cross and his resurrection as the end of this evil age as the end of this world in its corruptive form and so it's going to take some explaining to do this the genealogy of Jesus in Luke then is extremely important in that he is considered here to be having universal saving effect. 
So once again, the genealogy of Jesus in Luke is of particular interest to us, especially under the rubric of Jesus' universal saving significance. Luke's gospel and Luke's sequel called Acts both have the flavor of universalism. You have to dig a little bit to see it. As Patrick Barton reminded me recently, in fact, Clement of Alexandria, who was one of the patristic theologians, he believed that Paul wrote Hebrews, that he wrote it in Aramaic, and that Luke was the one who translated it into Greek. I don't know if I concur with that, but it's interesting. Luke himself has also been proposed as the author of Hebrews by other people. Again, we haven't identified who exactly that author was. I kind of think Van Hoy was correct to say that Paul at least endorsed it in the last segment of Hebrews, Hebrews 13, 22 to 25. But whomever the author was, we know that Luke and Paul were co-laborers and friends and that Hebrews has strong affinities with the writings of both Paul and Luke. Either man would have endorsed this homily we call Hebrews. Both Luke and Paul were strong universalists. Luke's universalism actually shines through his genealogy of Jesus by the very way he presents that genealogy. The Lucan genealogy of Jesus begins with Luke 3.23. Now, again, you're asking yourself probably why, if the title of today's message is without genealogy, why am I dealing so much on the genealogy of Jesus Christ? The answer is, I'm dealing with Jesus' genealogy in Luke and a little bit in Matthew to show that he did have a genealogy, but not one that would have identified him to be or qualified him to be a priest after the order of Levi, which means he's a priest of a unique order and a special order and a special kind. Luke 3.23 also has some suggestions to it. It says, when Jesus began his public ministry, he was about 30 years old. Now, this is interesting because the Levitical priests began their ministry. The priests began their ministry when they were 30 years old. And they had to be washed in pure water to enter into their priestly ministry. Jesus was baptized by John at about 30 years of age. I think the suggestion is there that that's when he began his ministry of priest. So again, Luke 3.23 begins this, this genealogy also. When Jesus began his public ministry, he was about 30 years old, being, and then Luke adds this little parenthesis, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. Now, we know that Jesus was not the genetical or hereditary son of Joseph. So that was what Luke was doing a little bit here by saying he was supposed or he people imagined him to be the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. But Jesus was in, in fact virgin born and that's what Luke makes a very strong point about as does Matthew. The two gospels that make a big deal out of the nativity of Christ are both Matthew and Luke. John does it in a one sweeping phrase and the word became flesh. But now, though this does not tie Jesus in with the priesthood 
explicitly there's a faint impression of it in his being 30 years of age and being bathed or baptized there's a second faint impression here that he Joseph was the son of Eli and Eli and his sons we know from 1 Samuel 1 3 were priests that doesn't mean this is from a line of priests but there's a faint impression it's like an impressionistic painting the mention of Eli as the father of Joseph just has a faint suggestion of a family of priests in 1 Samuel 1.3. The reprehensible behavior of Hophni and Phinehas occasioned the visit of a man of God in 1 Samuel 2.27. We studied that in some detail. In whom God spoke of raising up for himself a faithful priest who will be obedient to God's will for whom God will build an enduring house. And we related that 1 Samuel 2.35 prophecy to Hebrews 2.17 to 3.6. So already there are faint impressions in Luke 3.23 at the kickoff of the genealogy of Jesus in Luke of priesthood, even though Jesus is not in the line of Levi or Aaron through Levi would not be able to be or qualified to be a priest in the Levitical order and that's extremely important because that's the argument that's being made here but I'm going about it in a different kind of way as I've been trying to do throughout this commentary so interestingly Jesus that name heads out heads off the descending genealogy which ends with the Son of God in 338 so Jesus begins it in 323. The Son of God is the end in 338. And so by an inclusio, Jesus, the Son of God, brackets the whole commentary. He's called Jesus the Son of God in Hebrews 4.14. That in a sense shows that Jesus comprises all of the genealogy. And that Adam is the last in the line and not Abraham or Noah or any other VIP suggests that Jesus embodies all of humanity in Adam that's a suggestion from Luke's or an inference from Luke's genealogy both Jesus and Adam are called the Son of God but in very different senses Adam was the Son of God Luke 338 in that he was not born of a woman but directly created by God Jesus is the Son of God by an eternal divine begetting and by his accession to the throne of God as King of Kings according to the Paul according to Paul of course Jesus is the last Adam and the second universally representative man the last Adam means that in a sense he encompasses all of humanity in redemption as Adam encompassed all of humanity in sin. Matthew repeatedly uses the word begot or fathered just like the Genesis 5 genealogy and I recommend you read all those I'm not going to do all of them in our messages. Genesis 5 has a genealogy that takes up most of the chapter. Like the author of Hebrews, Luke deploys the word son, huios, 
over and over again. Matthew emphasizes Jesus' specific significance to Israel, starting with Abraham. And so Matthew only goes as far as Abraham in Jesus' genealogy, as far back as Abraham, that is. Matthew emphasizes Jesus' specific significance to Israel, therefore, by starting with Abraham. Luke, on the other hand, stresses Jesus' significance to all of humanity by recording his descent to Adam. So Matthew, as far as Abraham, Luke, as far as Adam, who is also called the Son of God. Luke also goes beyond Adam to his origin in God, using that word origin in quotes. A.T. Robertson cites a, a man named Plummer, and I eventually looked up this guy because I saw him quoted so many times by A.T. Robertson. It's Alfred Plummer, and he did a critical and exegetical study on the gospel according to Luke in 1856. It was also published in 1922. And Plummer says this, it is in harmony with Pauline universality that Luke carries the genealogy back to Adam and does not stop with Abraham. I'll say that again. A.T. Robertson cites Alfred Plummer, who said in his commentary on Luke all the way back in 1856, he said, it is in harmony with Pauline universality. Notice that he noted that Paul was a universalist. Pauline universality, that Luke carries the genealogy back to Adam and does not stop with Abraham. And so once again, he speaks of Luke speaking with the universality of Paul. Luke and Paul were friends. Colossians 4.14, only Luke was with Paul in Paul's most direst moments. And therefore, they were close friends. They obviously had a harmony in doctrine. Paul was a universalist, so was Luke. If Paul and Luke had any influence on the Hebrews writer, the Hebrews writer was no doubt influenced by their universalism. So it's notable that this scholar, Alfred Plummer, from the 19th century spoke freely of Paul's universality and that Luke and Paul were harmonious on this theme. A careful investigation of Luke's entire body of writings, I'm thinking of doing that for a Christmas message sometime, a, a, a careful investigation of Luke's entire body of writings, that's Luke's Gospel and the Book of Acts, reveals a strong universalism just as much as a study of all of Paul's writings does. And we've done that under Better Call Paul and the Epistle of Romans. It should be noted that both Matthew and Luke take their genealogies through David. They both take it through David. And in doing so, they emphasize Jesus' descent through Judah, the royal hereditary line. So even though Jesus even was without a genealogy that qualified him to be a Levitical priest, he had a genealogy that qualified him to be a king. And so this, again, is starting to form up into a, I hope, a perceptive doctrine and a perceptive insight. 
So both Matthew and Luke take their genealogies through David, and in doing so, they emphasize Jesus' descent through Judah, the royal hereditary line, not the priestly line. And though there are two other Levi's mentioned in Luke's genealogy, Luke 3.24 and 3.29, they are not the Levi that is the son of Aaron. So in Matthew's genealogy, he has not just Jesus, but Jesus Christ. He puts the name Jesus with Christ. On the pairing of Jesus with Christ, Hebrews carefully pairs Jesus with Christ in certain strategic places in the homily. We take it for granted. We take the word Jesus and we assume it to be paired with Jesus with Christ. Jesus Christ, Jesus the, the Messiah. But Hebrews only does this in certain strategic places. First time we see Jesus' name is Hebrews 2.9. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor who tasted death for every person. That's significant. But only the name Jesus is used there. Matthew uses and pairs the name Jesus with Christ, which is also significant. Hebrews carefully pairs Jesus or twins Jesus with Christ in certain strategic places in the homily. Hebrews 10.10 is one of them, where he speaks about offering his body as a sacrifice for once and for all for the sins of the world. 13.8, where he says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then in the closing benediction, once again in Hebrews 13.21. On the pairing, P-A-I-R-I-N-G, of Jesus with Christ, which we so often take for granted, Richard Rohr, that's R-O-H-R, makes a striking statement in his book called The Universal Christ. And that connects Christology with the triune God. This is a quote from him I thought would be worth giving in today's increment. Richard Rohr writes this, The Christ, especially when twinned, with Jesus is a clear message about universal love and necessary suffering as the divine pattern. Starting with the three persons of the Trinity where God is said to be both endlessly outpouring and self-emptying. And he gives a beautiful picture of the Trinity here by saying like three revolving buckets on a water wheel. This process keeps the flow flowing eternally inside and outside of God and in one positive direction. This makes me think immediately of Romans 11.36 where Paul says, from him and through him and to him are all things. Matthew's genealogy, again, is relating only to the begetting of each generation. So-and-so begot so-and-so and begot so-and-so. Genesis 5 talks about someone being having a beginning of days, being born, and living so many years, begetting a son, and then outliving living out his days and then dying. So Genesis has a pattern of born, begetting, 
dying, born, begetting, dying, born, begetting, dying. In the seventh generation, after the first week of generations, however, Enoch doesn't see death. He walks with God. He has a testimony that he pleases God by faith, and then suddenly he's gone, and he's not found. And so he breaks the pattern. He's an anomaly. He breaks the pattern, just like Melchizedek breaks a pattern, just like Jesus breaks a pattern. Now, Jesus breaks the pattern in dying, and in dying dies for everyone, and then rises from the dead. So Matthew's genealogy is related only to the begetting of each generation, Luke's only with who was the son of whom. However, both Matthew and Luke lead up to a climax, the Gospels themselves lead up to a climax in which they record the death of Jesus, which is followed by his resurrection from the dead. The genealogy can stop there because as a result of Jesus' death and resurrection, all are born into the kingdom of God. As we just hinted, there are two more strong indicators of universalism in Luke's genealogy that would escape our notice if we were unfamiliar with the writings called One Enoch from the 3rd century BC and Jubilees from the 2nd century BC. In one Enoch, there is a segment called the Apocalypse of Weeks. And I want to emphasize this again, because I don't think we'll be going this way again for a while. The Apocalypse of Weeks. In it, Enoch arranges genealogies into weeks of seven generations. And again, this is why Jude 1.14, showing that the biblical writers knew about Enoch, in Jude 1.14, Enoch himself is said to be the seventh from Adam. Now, Enoch didn't write the book of Enoch. This Enoch called himself Enoch after the name Enoch, the seventh from Adam, as what we call a pseudepigraphical writing. He, he borrowed the name to write a book. And the book he wrote was about the watchers, about the Nephilim, about the fallen angels, about the world history as it, it, it unfolds in these genealogies. But he used the name of one who was the seventh from Adam. And he sort of depicted what it might have been for what Enoch saw when he was translated out of this world to heaven, what he saw. So that's where the book of Enoch came from. Bauckham, again, Richard Bauckham, in his book, The Jewish World Around the New Testament, which I highly recommend, the Jewish world around the New Testament. In chapter 10, uh, in, entitled Kainam, the son of Arpachshad, in Luke's genealogy, on page 156, Bauckham said, most important events noticed in the apocalypse happened at the end of a week. Most important events noticed in the apocalypse happened at the end of each week. That is, on the Sabbath of each week in the seventh generation. For another example, after Enoch, Abraham, for example, is elected as the plant of the righteous judgment at the end of the third week of generations in 1 Enoch 93.5. This corresponds to Luke's genealogy where Abraham is placed at the end of the third week of generations from Luke 338 
Adam the son of God to Abraham the son of Terah in Luke 3.34. Now this is made to work in segments of sevens because Luke's inclusion of this individual, Kainan, C-A-I-N-A-N, also spelled with a K, Kainan, son of Arphaxad, A-R-P-H-A-X-A-D. Kainan, son of Arpaxad. And if he wasn't in there, the number system would be askew. Kainan, son of Arphaxad, is not found in the Mathean genealogy, but it is found in the book of Jubilees in chapter 8 and verse 1. You're going to see all this in print. I know there's a lot to take in with this. The name Jesus, of course, that is and this I'm kind of repeating, running the iron over this to get more clarity. The name Jesus, I, it's J-E-S for us, U-S, but it, in the Greek it's I-E-S-O-U, Yesu. The name Jesus appears, and I'm emphasizing this again, in Luke's genealogy at the end of the seventh week of generations. That is in the 49th position in Luke 3.29 if you count the Son of God in Luke 3.38 and this corresponds to what we know as the Jubilee which happens at the end of each week of years and also the great prophetic Jubilee the great prophetic Jubilee which is the acceptable year of the Lord's favor as it's called in Isaiah 61.2 and Luke 4.19 in which liberty is proclaimed across the earth, as according to Luke, Leviticus 25. The year of the Lord, the acceptable year of the Lord, which Jesus mentioned in his sermon in Nazareth, is not a year at all, a literal year at all, but the entire messianic age that began with Jesus and was announced by him in Luke 4.19. Again, A.T. Robertson is helpful in his word studies on Luke 4.19, and he has a pertinent comment. He says, quote, The acceptable year of the Lord, and the auton curio decton. He does not mean that his ministry is to be only one year in length, as Clement of Alexandria and Origen argued. That is to turn figures into fact. The messianic age has come, Jesus means to say. When he says to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, he means to say the messianic age has come. On the first day of the year of Jubilee, this is again Robertson, the priests with sound of trumpet proclaim the blessings of that year. That's Leviticus 25, 8 to 17. This great passage justly pictures Christ's conception of his mission and message. So his 49th position in the placement in the genealogy of Luke would have struck a nerve in people that understood this, that Jesus is in the place of the Jubilee, which is the eschatological liberation of all creation and the eternal Sabbath ultimately speaking. Let's repeat now this complex insight one more time for clarity. Jesus' name 
the second time in Luke's genealogy is not the name of a personage in the genealogy, but the name of the eternally begotten and virgin-born Son of God. This time, Jesus' name appears at the end of the 11th week of seven generations, or the 77th generation, which to anyone familiar with the Enochic Apocalypse of Weeks would recognize that as the time of the consummation and the last generation of human history. And that's what he says in the book of Enoch, in the Apocalypse of Weeks. Enoch essentially says that his name is from the seventh generation of Adam. And that 70 generations after his name, that would be the end of world history, the consummation of all things, and the last judgment. Now, if Luke is saying that the end of all things, the consummation of all things, and the last judgment occurred with Jesus, then he's saying that the last judgment happened at the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's a summary of it. And that's exactly true. To make this work, Luke, evidently influenced by the Enochic Apocalypse of Weeks, or Enoch's Apocalypse of Weeks, and the Book of Jubilees, included this generation of Kynan, son of Arphaxad, in Luke 3.36. And he rightly did, because it's found in Jubilees. Nowhere else in the scripture, though. This served to place the namesake of Jesus in the 49th position in the genealogy and the name of Jesus, the divine Son of God, in the 77th position. So this profoundly signif significant move on the part of Luke reveals Luke's universalism as does the genealogy of Jesus as a whole. Luke's universalism is revealed in many ways both in his gospel and the book of Acts, where he narrates the inspired words of Peter at the beautiful gate who speaks of, quote, the mouth of God speaking in all of the prophets from time immemorial of the times of the restoration of all things. That famous word now becoming very popular, ap apocatastasis, is from Acts, a writing of Luke. In fact, Luke presents a profoundly universalistic salvific vision. A vision that can be found in the prophets. A vision that can be found in all of Luke's parables, incidentally. In Luke 24, 25 to 26, Jesus speaks of all that the prophets had spoken with an emphasis on the sufferings and the glory of the Messiah that were in fact fulfilled in Jesus' crucifixion, death, and resurrection from the dead. In Acts 3.19-21, Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, referred to God speaking in all the holy prophets from time immemorial of the restoration of all things. That's universal restoration. So Luke intended in his gospel and in the book of Acts together to present the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universally restorative impact of his 
death and resurrection. Luke 24, 25 and 26 speaks of the radical center of God's redemptive and restorative program and Acts 3.21 speaks of its universal horizon. So I'm going to close this and we're going to move in the next increment that will be increment 181. I'm going to continue some of these thoughts and continue this strain of thinking and I think that you'll find something of great value in it. So Luke's placement of Jesus at the end of the 11th week of seven generations and in the 77th position is revelatory for reasons that have to do with universal eschatology and soteriology. 11 itself denotes or chaos or disorder. Seven denotes spiritual perfection or completion. Jesus' appearance in history in the 77th position denotes the end of chaos. That's what Genesis 1-2 calls tohu wa bohu, which I believe the world and the age to still be in the state of Genesis 1-2. And so once again, Jesus' appearance in history in the 77th position denotes the end of chaos Tohu wabohu in Genesis 1-2, the chaos created by sin and death, and the beginning of a new creation, the creation that God intended from the very beginning, and that which Adam's sin did not deter or even interrupt, because God's plan took that into its plan, its redemptive plan. The name Jesus in the 49th position or at the end of the seventh week of generations denotes the year of Jubilee. And in connection with the book of Jubilees, this is the universal and eternal Jubilee and Sabbath. When Jesus reached the pinnacle at the peak of Golgotha, he was crucified. In his crucifixion, the world was crucified. In Galatians 6.14, when this one died, all died. So Jesus was, in fact, the last generation in world history in that sense, in 2 Corinthians 5.14. And so in the most profound sense, the last judgment occurred in Jesus' crucifixion and death. His death was not only the end of history, but the redemption of history and all of humanity, because his death was followed by his resurrection from the dead, which both Matthew and Luke records, as well as John and Mark. Again, and I keep saying again on purpose here, you can say, you say again too much. Well, read Psalm 136 sometimes, and you'll see again, God's mercy endures forever 26 times. The Lucan genealogy of Jesus reveals a stunning universality related to Jesus Christ. First, the placement of Jesus' namesake in the 49th position descending from Adam, the Son of God, suggests the relationship of Jesus to the prophetic jubilee year, which is related to the eternal Sabbath. Second, the placement of Jesus who is the Christ in the 77th position and at the opposite pole of the word the Son of God to anyone 
knowledgeable of Enoch's apocalypse of weeks, which we now are, would have associated Jesus with the last generation of world history, the last judgment, and the consummation of all things. This, the names which appear, now the way this comes about in Luke is by Luke's addition of Kynum, the son of Arphaxad. Names which appear in the book of Jubilees in chapter 8 and verse 1, which reads like this. And on the 29th Jubilee in the first week, at its beginning, Arpakshad or Arfakshad took a wife, and her name was Rasu Eya, daughter of Susan, daughter of Elam, as a wife. And she bore a son for him in the third year of that week, and he called him Kainan. Now, to top this off, I want to read the long title of Jubilees. The long title of this book of Jubilees reads this way. This is the account of the division of days of the law and the testimony for annual observance according to their weeks and their jubilees throughout all the years of the world. Just as the Lord told it to Moses on Mount Sinai when he went up to receive the tablets of the law and the commandment by the word of the Lord as he said to him, come up to the top of the mountain. God has bid us to come up to the top of the mountain where we can see a horizon of world redemption in Jesus, his son. That's what we're doing in our study of Hebrews 2020. We see Jesus. More is coming on this to explain further in our next increment. And Father, we thank you and we pray that you'll grant us insight. We pray that you'll grant us understanding. We pray that you'll allow us to see Jesus crowned with the glory of a great king and with the honor of our great priest who lives forever and intercedes forever to save us to the uttermost. In his name we pray.